This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. I'm April Vokey, and you are listening to Anchored, my chance to speak with some of the most influential people involved in the outdoors today. Join me as I sit down with my guests to learn more about their careers, opinions, history, relationships, and life both indoors and out. Donnie Vincent is an explorer, biologist, conservationist, and sportsman. These days, Donnie is best known for his inspirational films and passion for storytelling. But Donnie's journey started long before the camera started rolling. On this episode of Anchored, we discuss his passion behind the outdoors, his experiences with wild wolves, keeping our cool under pressure, and so much more. This episode of Anchored is brought to you by Brownells. Brownells has been in business since 1939 and is a leader in firearms distribution. Brownells carries more than just guns and ammo. They also carry binoculars, rangefinders, survival kits, and countless other tools and products. I recently got my hands on a pair of Vortex binoculars and have been impressed by how crisp they are while out in the field. It's no surprise, Vortex is a major player in optics, so their cutting-edge technology was bound to make its way into their binoculars. I use mine while birdwatching, deer hunting, scouting new land, and checking out tuna activity in the open ocean. Hartford, Connecticut is where I was born um, and raised in a little town called Enfield, Connecticut, about 45 minutes north of Hartford. So I'm an East Coast kid. I totally admit that I thought you were Canadian. Because and I say hey? No, because I think it's just in what I've seen of you, I don't know, you just remind me of the people I grew up with. You just remind me of a, sure. of a Canadian. Sure. And also, and we'll pick apart, we'll, we'll go through this more as we go down your timeline, but you really lack that big, rough ego exterior that I have just become so used to with a lot of, you know, I hate to say it, but like the American television personalities. So to me, I don't know, you just always kind of struck me as Canadian, but that that's really interesting. So were you born in 
you know, in the bush or were you born in the city? No, no, no. I was just, uh, uh, and I, I come from a normal middle-class family, you know, there's nothing, um, nothing that would stop you in your tracks, nothing that would pique your interest in the least mom, dad, brother, sister. And, and, um, but I always, I always did my own thing. I always was fixated on, I had two little directions, if you will, that, that captured my mind. One was I was fascinated. My dad, although not really a hunter, I I say this and I've said this in other interviews, my dad, not really a hunter. He, um, he had the kit of a hunter, which was very inspirational to me. So he had a little walnut gun rack and he had you know, six or seven guns that any, any particular person would find, you know, useful, you know, a 12 gauge shotgun, a 410 shotgun, a 22 rifle, a, a 243 bolt action rifle, you know, all the kind of necessities. And, and in the drawer, he had scopes, additional rifle scopes and, and, um, you know, he had a hunting knife. And so he had all these things that reminded me of hunting. Um, and then he had a fantastic book collection that I would spend a lot of time with looking at reading and it was all about wilderness survival, hunting, fishing, camping. It was just, again, very moving for me. And that was one aspect of my mind. And then also um, my dad liked to take Sunday drives. And so sometimes I would go with him and, you know, looking at the farm fields and the forests and red barns and wild turkeys and white tailed deer and, and all of that kind of compartmentalized the hunting portion of my brain was something that quite literally owned me. And then the other portion of my brain was wildlife, snakes, frogs, turtles, um, different birds. Like I was completely um, enveloped into all things wildlife, fish, watching fish spawn, fishing, things like that. But those two things were isolated to me. Catching snakes and frogs and turtles was one aspect of my life. And then thinking about skinning a deer and um, killing a wild turkey for uh, you know the family to share and and squirrel hunting and shooting a a woodcock and a grouse like that was an entire and so as I got older those two things kind of blended together and I realized that they're all you know kind of one it's just a a connection to the to the outdoors but that was literally um, the only other thing that I did uh, that was interesting when I was growing up was I raced motorcycles and I have a little secret little nugget that I still uh, still love motorcycles. I still love going to motorcycle races. I still have a lot of friends that race motorcycles. So uh, that's kind of my childhood, if you will. Yeah. Yeah. So do you remember your first, I I hate saying kill, but the first animal, you know, whose life that you took? Yeah, that's a good question. Nobody's ever asked me that. That's a really good question. Um, I remember my first deer, of course. I remember... Um, my first animal that I killed was probably a gray squirrel, I would imagine. I don't think I killed a bird first. I'm pretty sure it was a gray squirrel. Uh, and I don't remember the instance. I don't remember where or when, but my my dad would take me occasionally, once a year, twice a year, he'd take me squirrel hunting. So we'd go to these little woodlots, and um, we'd sneak around and look for gray squirrels, and he 100% was there for me. Yeah. He didn't really want to be there. This was for me to explore. And, and when I started to take things way too seriously, he, he bowed out. (laughs) Right. Were you guys eating squirrel or was it just, you know, pellet gun stuff? 
I, I, I didn't do anything with a pellet gun. This was um, with a twenty-two, with a rifle. But to eat, were you yeah, eating so no, them? No, no pellet gun stuff. Oh, yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Skin, oh, I took great care in skinning them and breaking them down. And I mean, they were they would be in the frying pan that afternoon and gone. When, I, when we would go squirrel hunting, we'd skin them, cook them, eat them, done. And they're awesome. I, I want one tomorrow. <laughs> well, it's funny. I never knew that you could even eat squirrel. I mean, I figured, of course, you could eat them, but I didn't even know that was a thing until probably eight or nine years ago. So, but I don't want to get totally sidetracked here, but just for, out of my own curiosity, is it like rabbit? Is it fattier than rabbit? How many people does one feed? All of that fun stuff. It's been a while. Um, although I'm in Illinois right now and, um, I'm, I'm bow hunting and I'm seeing, we see a lot of fox squirrels, which is basically like a robust, heavy set version of a, of a gray squirrel, different species, but very similar. Um, I don't know. I could probably, if I was hungry, I could probably eat three whole squirrels, maybe four whole squirrels, something like that. They basically break down to be front legs become chicken wings, back legs become chicken wings, and then the back straps. And so you get five pieces or, yeah, basically five pieces out of each squirrel. And so, um, but it's really, uh, it's dark meat. It's really rich. It's, it's like eating a, it's like eating chicken. It's really good. Huh. Like a lean chicken. So, all right. So just getting back on track to your timeline, you start, uh, hunting really. And then where does it go from there? At that point, are you just a regular kid who enjoys the outdoors? Um, or were you one of those psychos who wanted to lock himself up in a room and, you know, cut up all the animal parts? Like what were you like in school? No, for me, it was just, um, it was just continued exploring. It was, um, it was just constantly out in the woods, daily out in the woods, finding anything that I could, looking at the landscape, watching the sun come up, watching the sun go down. It's it's not all that different than I'm doing right now. And just trying to see places that, that I'd never been to before. And then when I was in, uh, I was going into 10th grade. So I was 15. My parents moved me to Big Lake, Minnesota. So I went to Big Lake. It was a small town, 3,000 people or something like that at that time. And there, you know, there was way more opportunity for hunting in Big Lake, Minnesota than there was in in Connecticut. And so then I started meeting other, like, when I was in Connecticut, I was the only kid that I knew that wanted to hunt. All my friends wanted to race motorcycles. They wanted to, you know, do this, do that. And and I was the only one that wanted to hunt and fish. And so coming to Minnesota, I met other kids that wanted to hunt and fish. And and then I, I, you know, I started lashing onto these guys that wanted to go duck hunting. Duck hunting was probably my very first uh, true love was just that's, I, I mean, I, I was interested in hunting deer. I was interested in hunting grouse, everything, but duck hunting was the idea of having decoys and calls and a dog and a 12 gauge and going out hours before sunlight and finding the perfect little spot in a forested little river, forested stream, little pond, setting up, setting up your decoys and, you know, wading through the water and feeling the weight, you know, you're, you're, you fly fish. So feeling the weight on your waders, you know, and that balance you kind of feel, and dragging, you know, you'd have a line of decoys over your shoulder and you can hear them 
clanking and banging together behind you and bumping into each other and, and then throwing them out. You know, you're tossing them and you see them hurling through the air and it's the splash and, you know, and then going and settling down with your dog and maybe eating a donut or drinking a cup of coffee or whatever and just chilling out. And then, um, you know, and you're checking your watch because it begins at a time. It begins at a, at a minute. And so um, that was always very exciting to me. It's, you know, there's, you know, because we could shoot ducks. You know, I think Minnesota's 30 minutes before sunrise. And so, you know, so you're sitting there going, okay, you know, and oftentimes I'd be either by myself or with a buddy and I'd be like, hey, 15 more minutes. Or I'd, I'd say I had a little black lad named Claire. And I'd say, hey, Claire, Claire, 15 minutes. You know, and then Claire, 10 more minutes. And then ducks would start, you know, you'd see them trading around. It's just waterfowling is so involved with gear. It's so involved with, you know, we can go deer hunting and not see a deer. You can go deer hunting. I mean, there's times, I guess, that guys don't see ducks, but generally you're seeing them, you're hearing them. There's action, even though you might not be pulling the trigger and you're hearing other guys shoot. I don't know. It just was uh, an immense first love. And I remember 10th, 11th, 12th grade, um, man, I hunted ducks a lot, a tremendous amount. And then what happened? Did you end up going to college after that? And if so, what for? I ended up going to college, but it was a very long road for me. Um, I was not a successful student in high school. I, um, I wasn't a bad kid. I, I definitely, uh, you know, some things happened in high school that I, I'm not proud of, but, uh, you know, I just, uh, was finding my way in a new school and, you know, as a young man and you're going through all that stuff with new friends and, and other young men, there's a lot of, uh, there's a flowing testosterone at that time in your life. And so, you know, I, I had to find my way and I, I started to realize, and it's stupid to admit this, but I started to realize my senior year that real life was coming and, I, you know, I wasn't ready and um, there's no way school was going to be a possibility for me, not a real school. And so I ended up going to a community college and I went there for two years and got a degree and then, um, ended up seeing a brochure for the University of Minnesota um, College of Natural Resources. And on the brochure, there was a moose on the cover. And so I thought, and if I'm going to get a college degree, I should definitely look in this scope of work. There's a, there's a moose on the cover of this brochure. So I went and met with the, the um, administration and, and I'll never forget this, but the woman that interviewed me, she said, Donnie, this school is ranked, I forget what it was, third or fourth in the country for wildlife biology. She's like, you don't, I wouldn't let you in here if your life depended on it, essentially. Like, she's like, you don't have oh. the, the application to pull this off. But she's like, I can kind of, I'm getting a sense of a passion from you. So she gave me a list of classes that I had to take and do well in. And she basically said, if you take these classes and do well in them, I'll let you into the program. And I've never, I've never told this to anyone. Those, those classes took me two years to complete. And so I had a two-year degree. Then I went and completed those classes for two years, then got into my undergraduate degree in wildlife biology. And so, and then um, went through school and, and uh, immediately started getting work after school, uh, which was you know, I was basically led to believe that that was going to be one of the more difficult parts would be actually finding work. But I went and studied tigers in Bangladesh 
with uh, a guy named Dave Smith. He's a, he's probably the number one tiger ecologist in the world from the university of Minnesota. Um, I had a class with him and, and um, we did some stuff with radio telemetry. He really liked me, I guess, and what I was working on. And so he invited me to go to Nepal and Bangladesh to study tigers with him. I did. It was, as you can imagine, super dangerous and really fascinating and once in a lifetime. And then after that, I studied um, grouse. Uh, I helped a friend of mine finish his PhD and studied rough grouse. Cool. Yeah. yeah. In um, northern Minnesota, in, the, in um, uh, Chippewa National Forest. And then, um, and then after that, I did the majority of my work for the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service in Alaska um, on Pacific salmon. And the reason I did so well there is because they needed someone that they could drop off and basically forget that person existed. And, you know, and I did really well at that. And so, um, I excelled in that and, and kept getting hired back every year. So, cause it's, it'd be seasonal work. I'd go there May through October and then, and then I'd have winter off. Gotcha. Now, what is this? I'm sure you've probably told this a million times, but I would like to hear the story about wolves. Mm. Because it's funny. I often, when I do these podcasts, I refer to this time when I ran across this coyote, I was lost and I ended up getting out and being young and naive I and romantic. I got out and ended up hanging out with this coyote and singing and it just laid with me and we just hung out. Mm-hmm. And so I've always kind mm-hmm. of, actually a couple of podcasts ago, we talked, we spoke with, where we discussed this when I had mentioned that um, I had this dream as a little girl to hang with wolves. And then we got, seg- we segued into like, are there wolf attacks? Do you have people in North America anyway, been killed by wolves, blah, blah, blah. So I kind of, I would like to pick your brain about some of that, but first I'd love to hear the story direct from you about what happened with them. Sure. You're talking about in the research camp. Yes. Right. Yeah. I, I've, um, I've been fortunate enough to be around wolves um, quite a few times, but there, um, I don't remember the years uh, particularly, but it was 2003, 2002, something like that. So I was, I was in a research camp and um, I was with a young lady from um, Hudson, Wisconsin, which is odd because that's where I live now. But she, her name was Kara. I won't say her last name, but her first name is Kara. Um, but we would hear wolves howling every night. And then every night when I was done working, which was very late at night, because we would work, basically we're working on fish. So as fish are coming up the river, we're working on them as they're moving up to spawn. So all daylight hours we're working. Our day would start, you know, like four or 5 a.m. and it'd end at midnight. So we'd get four hours of sleep, but I would always go fly fishing for an hour before I'd go to bed, right? And um, just to, to catch fish. And, and I noticed as I, we would hear howling for probably five, six, seven, eight days, we heard howling. And then I went down to the corner of the river and I was noticing in the morning that on top of my boot tracks would be wolf and grizzly bear tracks, but I was never seeing wolves, never seeing grizzly bears. Um, but then one night I was in camp and the howling was in a different location. So I howled back and then the wolves howled back and then I howled back and the wolves howled back and I didn't really think anything of it, but I ended up going, coming to the edge of the river and I was on the high side of an outside bank and I looked down and right where I had been fly fishing, where I go fly fishing every night, there was a wolf sitting there 
And um, it just struck me that it was a female. It looked like a female, small, not a puppy, but just diminutive. And um, and I, I called Kara over. I said, oh, look at this wolf. You know, check this out. This is really cool, you know. And, and the wolf, was, she was sitting like a dog, sitting on her butt, legs straight in front, staring at us. And I made a little noise to her. You know, I, I did something like a whoa, 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 like that. And she laid down. You know, she perked up. And then I made another, you know, rah, 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 rah. and she sat up. And she, you know, kind of tilting her head, but not really, but just kind of like staring at me, definitely seeing me. And then she disappeared. And the next night, I think it was the next night, um, I was fly fishing and I felt, this is silly to say, but it's just, and I felt this way a hundred times. And, you know, when you're fly fishing by yourself in grizzly country and you're seeing fresh tracks every day and there's alders not five yards behind you, you feel like something's watching you all the time, right? So because there's they a, are. They're watching yeah. you. So there's a million times that I'm sitting there fly fishing, and, you know, and I look back. And, and this one time I look back, and I'm looking at the alders, and all of a sudden my eyes zoom in, and I can see her face. I can just see her face through the alders. And I was like, oh, there you are. She's maybe 10 yards, something like that. So she disappears and I go back to fishing. All of a sudden I see her. She's coming and walking behind me. So she would walk behind me and I could see her. She'd stick her neck out and just kind of try to smell me or she was smelling me. I shouldn't say try to smell me. I'm sure she was (laughs) six months in a tent without a shower. I'm sure she had no issues figuring out who I was. (laughs) And, um, And then if I made eye contact with her, she would snarl. Her, oh, her, wow. her lips would, yeah. And, and I, I never took it as aggression. I took it almost as nervousness. She would po- posture and show me her teeth, you know, like, Hey, I don't want to be like, don't touch me. Don't look at me. I, I, you know, when you look at me, I feel unsafe. It's kind of like if I'm anthropomorphizing the, the engagement and, um, and she walked right behind me a couple of times stealing smells. And then she left and, um, and then it was, I think a few days later, I came, no, it was a few days later, I was in my tent and I had a 12 gauge um, pump action Remington 12 gauge uh, attached um, to the side of my tent. And I woke up, the, the place that we were doing our research, we were on uh, this really cool piece of protected tundra. So we had these little boardwalks that we'd make, almost looked like Lincoln Logs to get to like our genetic tent to get to our kitchen and to get to all our, so we weren't walking on the tundra and leaving human trails. We we're walking on these planks, little planks. Good and idea. so, um, yeah. And it was very, very wet there. And so we had this little plank that we would have in front of our tents, a uh, little platform. And in the middle of the night, what I perceive as the alpha male was sitting on my deck howling. And he woke me up and I grabbed my shotgun and I put one in the chamber and I was, you know, kind of panting and, you know, I'm sure my pupils were massive. I was just looking around, you know, and I was thinking, you know, like, what's going on? Where is he? And then all of a sudden I heard you know, his toenails on the, on the deck, you know, and I was like, oh, it just hit me. I was like, oh, it's a wolf. And I hung it back up and I was like, oh my God, it's just a, literally, a, you know, I'm thinking it's just a wolf. 
So I unzip my tent and I can look outside. He's not very far away. You know, he's feet. He's just sitting there and he didn't look at me or anything. And then he was gone. And then in the morning when I got up and started walking to the tent where we did all of our work, um, I just happened to look over and, and there one of them was, wasn't the female, wasn't the big male, I don't think. And there was a, um, a wolf there and he just kind of paralleled me. And then, and then those engagements just started happening. Little things like I'd come out of the tent sometimes and I'd look all around, wouldn't see them. And then I'd go, I'd walk a short distance, you know, maybe go use the restroom and come back. And as I was coming back, there's, you know, there's the wolf. And then, um, and then it got to the point where Kara and I, we would do these huge walkabouts just for exercise and the wolves would go with us. So they would stay back, you know, quite a ways, you know, probably the closest they would get would be like 50, 80, a hundred yards, probably a hundred yards would be maybe the closest that they would get. And then out to like 200 yards and even 300 yards. But as we would do like a 10 mile walkabout, you know, they, they would follow us and then they'd end up back at our camp with us. And then, uh, the only thing that I did, I did two things that were kind of unethical. Um, I think I've admitted to both of them now. So one was, um, and I said this on Rogan, I had a couple of Eskimo guys that worked with me and, um, they wanted to shoot the wolves really bad. And, uh, and I just thought that was an unfair, I had a wolf tag too. I had my bow with me and I had a wolf tag. I could have arrowed probably multiple of those wolves, but, um, you know, it's just too much engagement. Now it wasn't a hunting scenario. It was too much. There was there. Everyone's guard was let down. My guard was let down. Their guard was let down. But, um, I attempted, well, so I told the Eskimo guys, um, Inuit guys, I said, Hey, I don't want you guys to shoot these wolves. I think they might be some of your ancestors which I know is a terrible thing to say, but they believed, they often believed that their ancestors would become wolves and bears. This, this particular group that I was with. And I just said, Hey guys. And I wasn't messing with them. I just said, Hey, cause I don't, I don't know what happens when we die. And, and I just said, you know, like these wolves are doing things that are uncommon. So maybe we shouldn't shoot these wolves because maybe these wolves aren't really, um, and biologically, my, my representation is they weren't there for me. They weren't there for us. They were there because as we did research on fish, dead fish were everywhere. And our research gear was stopping the fish from just floating downstream. So the wolves would stop there and eat the fish. That was the other unethical thing that I tried to do. So I tried to feed the female a fish a few, a few times. And she would get to where it'd be my hand, the salmon, and then her nose, but she never took it from me, but like she would get right there. She was too afraid. I think that I was going to grab her, that it was a trap. So she would just hang back a little bit and I would toss it to her just a couple of feet. She would pick it up, go and eat it. And then she'd come back. But I mean, I wasn't doing anything that was outside of, I wasn't changing the course of history. There were fish everywhere that she could catch and eat. You know, because they're they're half dead and they're just kind of sitting there on the side of the river. You've seen them, you know, through all your fly fishing, and um, and so yeah. But that's basically that's the first real engagement that I had with wolves, and it basically continued for an entire summer. 
two what months, three experience. months. And, and it's funny, you're a good man because when you said that you had done something unethical and you started speaking about, you know, the crew wanting to kill them, my stomach started churning. And honestly, if I was in the same situation, I would tell people those wolves were God. I would make, <laughs> I would make them steaks and serve them with fish on the side. Like if that's the worst that you did, you've done all right. So yeah, what about... And this could very quickly derail this whole conversation, but I'm going to ask you anyway. So what about what are your thoughts on hunting wolves then? Is that something that you've done before? Um, I've never done it. Um, I've considered killing a wolf before. I've had wolf tags in my pocket and I've had my bow and I've had wolves within archery range. But um, to be honest with you, I just never um, – I'll give you the best for instance that I have maybe represents where my mind is at. Um, we were in a Valley in Alaska filming. We were hunting moose and we were seeing a lot of really big moose and we were actually dropping in on this big bull that we had bedded. And as we were going in there, I actually thought I saw his, what would have been his right paddle through the alders as he was bedded down but as I snuck around this bush, I noticed that that right paddle was actually a white wolf sitting up. So I was like, oh, there's a wolf. And so then I was with William Altman, who's sitting right behind me. Um, right. <laughs> and I said, hey, I said, William, hey, like, you know, we're, we're making films. And so I, you know, I don't have to be in this shot. This isn't something that I have to be filmed for. So I said, hey, William you know, sneak up there and film this wolf, you know, get, get some really pretty footage of it. And he's like, yeah. So he snuck. And then all of a sudden there was a wolf right here to his right, essentially. And, and he looked over and he's like, man, how'd she get all the way over there so fast? And then we saw another one and then another one. And then we quickly realized that it was a whole pack and that they came in. I mean, they were, you know, within feet of us, surrounded us, walking all around us. And they were vocalizing. They were doing this little like, ah, they were talking to each other, looking at us so soulfully. They they looked at us with more soul. I shouldn't say that because I'm probably misremembering. But they looked at us. I believe I feel like they looked at us with more soul than those wolves that I had spent the summer with. These wolves looked at us like these were big wolves. They were hunting. They were there's nothing scary. They weren't threatening us. They weren't stalking us. They were checking us out. In my opinion, they were seeing if we were, I said this on a podcast. I said this on another podcast and I had a wolf biologist from British Columbia. She wrote me a pretty nasty letter. Um, but I said, I felt like they were evaluating us as a food source, but very quickly thought, mm, this isn't going to be so good for us. Like this isn't where we need to be hunting. And so, you know, they kind of peeled out, but, um, but wait, wait, I'm lost on a couple of things here. Why sure. the nasty letter in, in, in the way Cause, that, cause I said that they were, I made a statement on a podcast. That I said, yeah, they came in to hunt us and then they realized that we weren't a prey item and they left. And then, and then she wrote me a letter and just said, they weren't hunting you. They knew you're humans. They came in to just check you out. And I said, well, okay, so I maybe I misspoke. Maybe they weren't hunting us. But I'm just telling you, these animals were looking right through me. You know, I not once was I afraid. We had another photographer with us, and he was freaking out. And then he he he's an awesome 
an awesome guy. And he looked at me and he said, he swore. He said, why in the F aren't you freaking out? Why aren't you knocking an arrow? And I said, hey, his name's Chris. I said, Chris, you're okay. He said, we're okay. And I said, you're okay. And I said, they're not going to hurt us. And he instantly just, he calmed down. The whole situation was, you know, I'd spent months with this other pack of wolves. And I felt like I had more of a connection with these wolves in five minutes of, they just seemed, they were all business. And so my point is, I thought about shooting one of them. You know, I thought, because I, you know, I'd love to skin one out. I'd love to have the skin of one. I'm not a trophy collector. But I, I, I like artifacts of wildlife, just like I like to, you know, if you had a pressed, you know, wildflower in your, you know, in your book, in your living room, I opened it up and saw it. I would, it would be a treasure. I would take great care and looking at it just like I would a wolf pelt. And then I thought I would really love to eat. I'd love to go back to the teepee tonight and cook a wolf. I'd love to eat wolf tonight, you know? And, and so this all was going through my mind, but I thought, I don't know what the wolves are doing in this Valley. I don't know these wolves. I didn't talk to the pilot or the biologist before I came out here to find out, you know, maybe these wolves aren't doing that well. Um, Maybe these wolves are overpopulated. I don't know. And so I, I didn't know what was going on with them and with their habitat and with the moose and the caribou. I didn't know. So I didn't shoot one. Um, when I went out there, we had, I had talked to the biologists about black bears. I talked to the biologists about moose, but we didn't talk about wolves. And so um, when the pilot came to pick me up, pick us up 23 days later, he started asking us what we had seen and we're telling him and he was like, Oh, this is fascinating. And we told him about the wolves and he said, did you shoot one? And I said, no, we didn't shoot one. Cause we didn't know how they were doing. And he goes, Oh, he goes, that's okay. That's okay. He goes, but they're, they're really overpopulated in this, in this Valley right now. And I said, Oh, okay. Had he, when he was flying us in or the biologist, had he said, look, we're having big issues with wolves in this Valley. You have a wolf tag. If you get a shot, take it. You know, I, I, I still, I may have, I don't know, but I'm not against wolf hunting at all. If you want to be a wolf hunter, I'm definitely against, you know, unethical, um, wolf hunting, a very, very good friend of mine, Aaron Snyder. I've been on his podcast a few times and he is not a friend or fan of the wolf. And I think he, you know, I think he thinks, I, in fact, I pretty sure he's called me a wolf lover, but, um, I'm not. I, if you want to hunt wolves, if you want to trap wolves, I have friends that trap them. I think it's fascinating. I think hunting wolves is anything. If, if the population can warrant it, maybe even need it, and you do it with great ethics and, you, and great care, then I'm 100% on board. That's about what I figured. It's funny. A few podcasts ago, we were discussing cougar safety and cell, you know, defense in the bush. And one of the things that came up was the whole wolf thing. And I remember when I had watched The Grey, remember The Grey with Liam Neeson? Yeah, ridiculous movie. <laughs> I went on to this crazy internet binge of just wanting to learn about every single fatality. And if I recall, and admittedly since the last podcast, I haven't looked it up. I've been too busy. But I, I think I recall that there had been zero fatalities in North America, but that there were countless tragic fatalities, like whole communities of children being eaten by wolves in, in various parts of the world. Have you heard of that before? Have you ever heard of a fatality in North America? 
Oh yeah. Yeah. I think there's, um, I can't be quoted on this, but I think somebody was killed within the last five years in British Columbia. I think a young, a young woman was jogging and I believe she was attacked and killed and consumed while she was on her morning jog. Uh, But I think we've had, I think there's been maybe one or two fatalities in North America now. I don't know. And I've never heard of communities being um, harassed by wolves and and children being taken. I've I've never heard that or, or read about that, but I believe there's one or two fatalities now from wolves. It's time for me to get back on Wikipedia. Wikipedia. I remember reading it and not being able to go back to sleep because I was so upset, but that would have been sure. you know, when the movie first came out. So a long time ago. Um, okay. Let's, let's get back on track here. So you go to Alaska, you have this amazing experience at that point. Are you known as Donnie Vincent, the hunter, or are you just a broke school bum trying to make his way through life? That's right. Yep. I was still hunting um, as much as I could when I wasn't working. I was hunting. And as soon as I would get done with my research, um, I'd fly up to the Arctic Circle and go caribou hunting. Uh, I was hunting bears in the southeast Alaska uh, in the Prince William Sound and, and or South Central, I guess. And um, yeah, I was just I was just hunting. No one, no one. The only people that I that knew me for anything were other hunters that I hunted with. And you just start to build street credit of the things that you do. And it's more so, it's not an ego thing, although it has become that now. Now with social media, it has become some sort of chest beating, killing a deer that's 170 inches over one that's 160 is somehow a resume builder. I don't get it at all. Um, but, um, but people just started to appreciate back then before all this crap, um, people would just say, Hey, you, you know, you like to li- you like to sleep in a tent for 30 days. Cool. Like when I got to Alaska, all the biologists that I worked with who are still dear friends of mine had zero time for me. They didn't want to help me. They could care less if I crashed my boat. They could care less if my boat sank. They could care less if I was attacked by a grizzly bear. They didn't care if I had my gear right, ready, built, broken, could care less. I was another guy. They had their stuff together. I sure as hell better have my stuff together because we're going to a dangerous place. There's no room for error. Don't be an idiot. That was basically my, that was my, you know, trial by fire. And so once you start doing well in those scenarios, you know, then these guys are saying, you know, they say, Hey, I drew a doll sheep tag in the Chugach mountains outside of Anchorage. Um, do you want to come up and, backpack with me and we'll go in and look for sheep and we'll climb around and hike and hunt. And yeah, I, I'd love to do that. So I, you know, come up or stay up and go sheep hunting with these guys in the mountains. And, and it's just a, it's a love, you know, you, it's, it's truly who you are. It's, it's a love and you start doing these things because it's what you love. And so you start to build a resume because guys say, Hey, I, I drew a goat tag in a really nasty place. Who, who do I want to go with me goat hunting? I'm going to call Donnie. Donnie loves miserable weather. Donnie loves camping in horrible places where there's a lot of bears and not that many goats. And, and, uh, and we can still have a great time, whether we're socked in in the tent for five days or we shoot the next world record. You know, Donnie enjoys doing that, so I'm going to give him a call. And now that is, you know, that's transcended into this shitstorm we're in now. But, um, um, but yeah, I mean, but you know, that's, yeah, no, no one, no one knew me as Donnie Vincent and you know, that's silly to even say right now. 
No, I, I totally understand how, I, I mean, my career is the same with fly fishing. It, it was for no other reason other than that. I was totally obsessed and addicted to adventure. That was it. There were no smartphones yeah. or internet. I mean, there, I'm sure the internet had started, but there was no, none of what the world is today. We sure as hell couldn't record our lives on our cell phones. Um, yeah. In fact, my parents yeah. made me get a cell phone because I was fishing and almost dying in the rivers. So I totally yeah. get it. Um, what about guiding though? You know, I know for me, my next step was guiding. I was like, well, I want to make a living doing this because I'm sick of eating pasta and canned goods. I'm going to make yep. some money so I can do it every day. And the only way I can do it is guiding. Did you ever battle with that? Um, I applied for one guiding job, um, one time. And, um, and the guy said, you have to be, you know, this was in Alaska. He said, I want you to be a good mechanic. And I said, I'm not. He said, I want you to be a good fly fisherman. I said, I'm an okay fly fisherman. And I said, but I'll, you know, like, he's like, we do scary things. I said, no problem. He said, we have big bears. I said, no problem. He said, you know, you're going to need to carry heavy backpacks. I said, no problem. All that stuff. I said, but, you know, and he, he had, he had a remark that he had a guy in camp one of his head guides, he goes, he can take an entire Honda four-wheeler totally apart down every last piece and put it back together. And I said, I can't do that and very likely can never do that. And even if I did do that, that means I have a Honda manual in two years where I don't have to do anything. And and then maybe I could put a Honda four-wheeler all the way back together totally with taking apart. It's not, it's not my deal. But I said, I can do all the other things. And he wanted me to guide um, brown bear hunting, moose hunting, waterfall hunting and then fly fishing. And I said, yeah, I'm, I'm into all that. And he even wanted me to, I had a really good black lab at the time. Her name was Claire. And he's like, bring Claire. And I said, yeah, awesome. And he made me my offer. And, um, and I, and I, I was already working in, I worked in, uh, I worked in a hospital in cardiovascular surgery at that time when I was in school and after school. And, and that's just how I made money. And Dude. so what, 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 were, I mean, you don't have your, your, your doctorate. Like what no, were you no, doing? No, I, I was just a technician, just a cardiovascular oh. technician. So I yeah. would just assist the doctor and, um, but I made plenty good money then, you know, I made way more money doing that than I did as a biologist, way more. Um, but the, doing the biology work was what I wanted to do. It's where I wanted to be. And, um, um, but so he made me my offer and I was like, Oh, I mean, this is neat and all, but no, it's going to take double that. And he's like, oh, I can't afford that. And I said, okay. And that was that. And I never, you know, never thought about guiding again. So, mm-hmm. yeah. So then what was the next step? Cause okay. So you're a biologist, you're doing the cardiovascular thing. Were you doing those at the same time or had you left the biology world to go and do something that made more money? No, I was doing those at the same time. So I would take a leave of absence from the hospital, go do research for five months come back and, and go back in, into the hospital and do that all winter, then biology winter. And yeah, so I did that for several years. And then, um, um, and then I had a couple of other businesses that I was working on um, that never really took off, never really did anything, but I, it, they took a lot of time. And so they took a span of years to kind of work through these things. One was in motorcycles. Actually, a couple of them were in motorcycles and, and, um, cause I always kept kind of my hunting stuff separate. And then, um, I don't even really know. Um, it was through Sitka gear through the company Sitka gear. Um, I was going to do a sheep hunt 
in the Yukon anyway. And a friend of mine, John Hafner, he's a photographer. He was shooting a cover story for Peterson's Hunting Magazine. And he asked me if he could come along on my shoot and shoot it for Peterson's. I said, yeah, he's super talented photog. And I said, yeah, come along. And, and he said, Hey, would you, I, I think, he, I think he lined me up with Sitka and said, would you wear Sitka gear? And I said, no, no, I, you know, I'm, I wear like Patagonia or Terex, things like that. Like I've collected good pieces from clearance racks over the years. Like I looked like, you know, I looked like a, a, a troll vomited me when I would hunt. I had a purple vest that I hunted in and black pants and, you know, and a blue hat and, you know, it's, it, it was a mess when I'd show up in camp, you know, people would be like, what are you doing? But he said, he said, will you, will you give the sick of gear a try? And I said, okay, if you, if you want to. So they sent me some long story short, um, Sitka ended up offering me a position to be a Sitka athlete. So, you know, no money, but they would send me all my gear um, I would go hunt. They would get photos for the catalog. I would talk about their gear on podcasts or whatever, which nobody was asking me to be on. Um, but then this gentleman approached me that he wanted me to host a hunting TV show. And he's like, he's like, I think you're charismatic. I think you're well-spoken. Um, you know, he's like, I think you'd be great on a TV show. And, um, and this particular gentleman, he knew Michael Waddell and, and, and I, I'd met a lot of these guys along the way as well. And so he kind of wanted me to do that style of TV show that those guys do. And, and I said, man, I can't, I can't, I, I have no interest in that at all. Like, that's not me. That's them. They're awesome at it, but I can't. No, thank you. And, um, and so but still I was thinking about filming and I'd been filming my hunts for years by myself uh, with a little handy cam. And so once I went and had my photos taken with John in the Yukon and he came home and he said, he said, I don't know if it's still true, but he told me, he said, Donnie, I've sold more photos of you than I've ever sold of any collection of work I've ever done. And, and it was funny back then because I would see myself on billboards and airports. I would see on covers of magazines. I was on, um, a friend of mine discovered me in a store on my face was on men's underwear. Um, what? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so he was selling and I didn't realize at the time, I didn't realize like to control that stuff. I just thought I went on a sheep hunt. He came, took all these photos. And then now, you know, the stuff is everywhere, you know, and, I'd be getting off an airplane and, and there'd be a giant Cabela's ad in Alaska and it's my entire face is all an entire wall is my face. And I'm thinking, you know, Cabela's doesn't even know who I am. They just bought the image from John to, you know, and so I was, I was like, man, okay, so I'm, you know, this is, and he's, you know, he sold all these images. And so Sitka said, you know, we think you would really get along with this guy over here. And he does a lot of, he's doing some film work. Um, I think, I think you might have interest to do some work with him. And it's a long story and, and one that um, probably shouldn't be told, but through the engagements with this gentleman, through learning from him kind of aspects of what it takes to really do this work at the highest level or at a very high level. Um, 
I learned a little bit from him, but didn't want to go down that road. And so then I was like, I'm just going to go do this on my own. And that was in 2011. Coming up, Donnie and I continue our conversation. While I have you here, I'd like to introduce you to Athletic Brewing Company. Athletic Brewing Company brews delicious craft beer that just happens to be non-alcoholic. As someone who is regularly appointed as designated driver, there are times, especially after a long hot day on the water, where I would also like to chill with my buddies and drink a cold beer after rowing their asses around. Athletic Brewing Company is the perfect substitute for those of us who crave an ice-cold beverage while rounding up children and fishing buddies on the riverbank. In 2020, Athletic Brewing Company donated over $300,000 to trail restoration and backcountry safety through their Two for the Trails program, where 2% of all sales dollars go to maintaining trails and parks that are often underserved by government budget shortfalls. They even offer free shipping on two six-packs or more. Try their award-winning beers at athleticbrewing.com and use code ANCHOR20 to get 20% off your first order. Now, I know, I think, I presume to know what you didn't like about what you were seeing. But for a lot of my listeners, they are fly anglers and they may be are just looking to get into hunting. Can you explain without throwing anyone under the bus um, what you didn't like that you were seeing, how you wanted to do it differently, how you, you were with the, doing it? With the original TV shows? Yeah, yeah. That's, we can stick to just TV yeah. rather than the whole industry, yeah. Yeah, it was just – it was very, very cookie cutter. Is very um, sensationalized as far as instead of – Hunting to me has always been about the gear, and I don't mean this new new gear that we wear now. I mean red plaid jackets, green plaid jackets, w- wood stock rifles. You know, you you had your little case for your binoculars, and and you had your little leather leather strapped satchel that you'd put your lunch in, and extra bullets. And and hunting was always about this kit of gear that you had you you know you had your special hunting knife that you only brought out you know once a year for deer camp you know this was and then it was that combined with um the camaraderie of meeting other men that did this stuff and learning from them sharing with them dragging a deer all together gutting a deer together um there wasn't an efficiency to see how fast you could do this stuff or how tough you were there was an, an embodiment of celebrating that and then it was the hunting itself. It was looking at, you know, deer scrapes and deer rubs and looking at deer trails and where they, you know, how they necked down and had to scoot around this beaver pond to where we could say, oh, you know, if we could sit up on this hill opposite of this beaver pond, it seems like all the deer in this area kind of have to scoot around this beaver pond. So it was solving that biology. It was truly being a predator, looking for an ambush point of your prey and appreciating them and seeing steam come out of their nose when they're walking by and seeing the antlers and, and understanding why their skin was or why their fur was this buff tan. And, you know, that was the hunting. That was hunting for me. And I took that and I went to Alaska and I, and I took that piece and, you know, and I took it caribou hunting. And then I, I sat there in the Arctic circle with my binos, you know, and I looked around and it was, the ultimate wide open space, right? I could look as far, you know, when I was deer hunting or duck hunting or squirrel hunting, you know, I'd see other guys that were doing the same thing. I'd see cars drive by. I'd see, I'd hear shots in the distance. Now all of a sudden I'm in Alaska and I'm glassing a herd of 
500 caribou. And I'm the only guy within 100 miles glassing this herd of caribou. I, I am by myself. I can't even hear an airplane. I haven't heard an airplane in 10 days. And so that was my hunting. That's what I wanted to keep. That's how it lived in my mind, still does. And when I watched the TV shows, I wasn't getting that. You know, I was getting, you know, um, and, and I'm being hypocritical because I've definitely done some of this stuff, but just get, you know, the rock music, you get, you know, pretty girls, you get, you know, souped up pickup trucks and things are designer and things are, um, they're just shiny and the words that people were using weren't words that I ever used and they weren't phrases that I ever said. And it was funny because the first film that we came out with um, called the rivers divide, um, I was writing for that film. I've told this story maybe a thousand times. I was writing for that film and I gave my voiceover work to um, our director and producer, Kyle Nicolai. And, um, and he took it and he read it and he said, this is horrible. I've never heard you talk like this at all. This is terrible. Like you need to rewrite this. And, and I thought, really, you know, what, what do you like about it? And he said, you, you don't talk like this. And I was writing it basically, you know, kind of like hunting TV. I was writing it to sensationalize things. I was writing it to have a, a, a macho element or a tough element, whatever. Like I was, I made the rain harder. I made, I had to go further. I, I, you know, I was, you know, I, whatever I, everything was overwritten. And, um, and he, and he, and he said, every time I ever talk to you, you know, you're excited that you killed a deer, but you're also really kind of bummed. There's a, there's a heaviness to it. He's like, you know, say that. And I said, you can't say that you, 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 you can't admit that to other, like I, you know, remember I came from this, um, this group in Alaska that, you know, when I showed up in Alaska, my first day to do biology work, you know, these guys were like, I hope you have your crap together because we're not waiting for you. And if you don't have your crap together, you very well might lose your life. And we don't care either way. It's, we've seen it before. We're going to see it again. So you better have your act together to, you know, so I kind of wrote in that manner, you know, kind of like beating my chest a little bit. And then, you know, Kyle's like, no, 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 write, write, write how, write it as though, no one's going to read this but you. Do that. Write this for you as though you're telling your deepest secrets to somebody who can't repeat it ever. And, and so that's how, you know, that's how I wrote the film. And so that's, that is maybe the difference. I don't know. I, I mean, yeah. I, I, yeah. Had you ever read your words out loud? Like when you had written your script, had you ever actually read them out loud and heard what they sounded like? coming out of you? No, I mean, not, not until I'm, you know, not, not in the beginning. No. Mm -mm. Do you do that now? Oh yeah. 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 (laughs) It's such a difference, isn't it? I know when I wrote my, I wrote my series and when it came out, I'd be like, Oh God, that's not how I would say it. And I'll, I'll, I'll tell you something. Writing television is hard. It is hard because you can't, the, the less words, the better when it comes to writing script for television. Yeah, so yeah. good on you for doing it successfully. Um, you know, talking you. about shiny, one of the things I wanted to ask you about was face paint. This sounds really silly, 
but I'm super curious about it. I noticed that mm -hmm. it's one of the first things I actually noticed in a lot of you guys' videos are the, is the face paint. And I admit that I am an eye roller. Whenever I see people wear face paint, I roll my eyes and I go, oh, there's another social media star trying to do their makeup, <laughs> whatever my thoughts mm -hmm. are. But mm -hmm. when I saw you do it, I was like, oh, maybe there's, maybe they, it really works. Can you tell me your thoughts on face paint? Is it, is it for show or does it actually work? No, for sure it works. Um, and I would have it on right now, but I forgot mine in my in my other backpack tonight when we went out. Otherwise, my face would be painted right now. Oh, were you um, hunting today? Mm hmm. Yeah, I literally got oh. out of the tree stand and, and came here to to this. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. yeah. Of got course. it. Okay. Yeah. So even in a tree stand, you're you're rocking face paint. Oh yeah. Yeah. Wow. So, you know, so, you know, one of just so to, to preface this so that you know, one of my contributors and actually our homesteading coordinator is Tom Brown the third. So okay. he, I'm sure you, you know Tom Brown, the survivalist. Mm -hmm. So his son. And he has just done a whole natural camel article for us. And he okay. does the whole the whole thing too. I haven't read the article yet. It's in editing right now. But what do you mean um, he does the whole thing? The whole shebang, the whole face. Um, talk to me about your thoughts on, on face paint. I'd love to hear it, um, from your point of view. Cause I yeah, genuinely not, just thought it was not like even, a fad. No, I mean, there's definitely fad aspects about it, right? That's, that's another thing. So people that really do face paint, um, and again, uh, I, there's hypocrisy in my words, if you want to pick it apart, but people that do face paint for real, um, uh, have a very, uh, pointed tactical advantage in, in a hunting scenario of, of covering your face. Now, of course, um, and I'm not going to pick on anyone, but of course the hunting industry had to go and turn that into WWF wrestling and eyes painted black and designs. And, you know, everyone had to like make their calling card. Right. Um, and so, which is fine to each of their own, but essentially how I came about it is I used to wear a face mask all the time. So I wanted to, um, whether I was wearing camouflage for most of my life of hunting, I did, I have not worn camouflage. I would just wear regular clothes. And I would just make sure I was in the shadows, make sure I brush behind me, some in front of me. And I just used that as basically a form of stealth. I didn't understand it until I um, went to school to be a biologist. And I started understanding how animals use counter shading, like a white-tailed deer is basically buff brown. A mule deer is buff gray. And if you looked at a white-tailed deer or a mule deer in and of itself, you'd say oh, that thing sticks out like a sore thumb, but you add shadows to that canvas by foreground, you add back drops to them that cover them up, and now suddenly they disappear, right? The, the, the um, cougar in British Columbia, they're – Genus and species Puma con collar, which basically says like I am I am a cat that is buff and I disappear. I am a ghost. Like I'm so I'm so nondescript that I disappear. Right? That it doesn't have the pattern of a leopard. It doesn't have the pattern of a tiger that work in those areas where they live to disrupt to disrupt the eyeball of their prey and to to have them disappear in vegetation. So I always used to wear a face mask and then I had an archery shot um, go terrible with a turkey, with a wild turkey. I was on the ground outside of a blind and I came to full draw and I had a mask on and I had my 
hand against my face. And when I released, my string ripped my face mask around and my arrow ended up hitting the turkey low through its guts. And I had to grab another arrow, knock another arrow, and I killed the turkey. But I took my face mask off that day and I said, I'm never wearing a face mask again. So I started painting my face so that my face could be free shooting my bow. And then um, little tidbits through my life. like I, And then I had friends that um, when we were waterfowl hunt, we would mess our faces up with mud. We'd put mud on our faces because when you're sitting in the cattails looking up and the sun has come up, like the ducks can see your faces like you wouldn't believe. Like you just see – you know, let's say if you're hunting with three Caucasian guys, it is white disc, white disc, white disc. And I used to hunt with this guy. He was awesome. He is awesome. I haven't hunted with him in years, but he's from Trinidad. He was very dark-skinned gentleman. I almost said African-American, but he's from Trinidad. Very dark-skinned black guy. Very, very dark. And he, you know, he didn't need face paint because he was so dark, but he would take – I had this face paint thing and it had like a gray. He would take the gray that I had and he would do gray to break up because his face was so freaking black that like, I'm sure when the ducks came in, they're like, what is that? What is that? What is that? What is that? You know, if, if they could see us. And so that's when I started face painting. And then I don't know where I'd always done it. This is, I've never told anyone this. But I always put two dabs right here, which always kind of make me feel like secondary eyeballs or something. And then I always do a uh, like a 45-degree angle or whatever down my face. And then I do up here. And then what I do is I'll do black. or if, And if I'm, if I'm in some place where there's green or something, I'll try to mix in a little bit. But basically I do a black line, black, black. And then I – lightly kind of just pull the black down to take the sheen off my face, right? Just to kind of like cover it up. So, and then I just want to cause some sort of disruption reflection to get the deer or whatever it is. If they look right at me, um, that, you know, that they have some sort of confusion, but yet I don't wear camouflage. Right. So, so guys are always kind of ripping me like you, you don't wear camouflage or I don't always wear camouflage. Like tonight I was wearing, camouflage pants because i really like the pants that i was wearing is wearing a, a wool pair of ll bean and they happen to come in this like army camouflage right so i'm wearing that and i wore this wool sweater and then that's basically it um but then i paint my face and they're like so guys were confused or like much like you might be rolling your eyes saying wait a minute you're not even wearing camouflage and you're painting your face well if you look at me right now as a human being this disappears this disappears right so my hat disappears, but my face is freaking front and center. Like you can see my face. And so, you know, like, but hat, if I had black lines on them, then the, and if I sat here like this and my face was covered, then you might look right past me. So that, so that's my, that is where I come from with painting my face is that, um, and I feel, and I said it to William tonight, um, we snuck into this area that we've been scouting and, and, um, we were hunting in a tree stand tonight and I looked at him as soon as we got up there and I said, I forgot my face paint in my other bag. And I said, man, I just feel naked, you know, and, um, cause it just feels, and, and if you really, you know, like you look at, um, Q 
Canadian snipers, U.S. snipers, like these guys, you know, when your life is on the line, these guys are hiding their skin and they're, they're not using like, you know, they're not using real tree or some sort of printed camouflage. These guys are using ghillie suits. You know, they want to look like a bush. They want to disappear. They want to break up their outline, painting their face, sitting still, sitting in the shadows, using cover. And if you do all that, it's amazing what you can get away with. I hate wearing two things, hats and rain jackets. They both mm. make me feel too restricted. Mm-hmm. But um, so I always try to wear my hood up and, but I need to hear everything. So I walk around with my ears like this out of my hood so I can hear everything. Do you wear a hat, especially when bow hunting? Like what's your go-to? I, I'm almost always in a stocking cap. I'm not a base, okay. baseball cap guy. I'll wear a stocking cap or I'll sometimes do both, a hood up over it. And actually a friend of mine, um, he's an amazing bow hunter, but he he tries to find hoods that come all the way up. Because he kind of wants to hide his face. Mm-hmm. His big thing is he doesn't want the he doesn't want his prey. I didn't see his eyes. He feels like they oh. re, there's a strong connection with his eyes, so he wants he wants to create where his eyes. But it comes down to how you can draw your bow and things like that. But um, so I'm almost always wearing a stocking cap, and it's just literally it's not for looks, it's not for function. I mean, it's not for um, for style. It's it's just stay warm. It's literally stay warm. And, and it makes me laugh because guys that wear baseball caps sometimes will wear – and William, um, my director of photography, he'll do this. And it's funny. But he'll wear a baseball cap and he'll put a stock cap on over it. You know, and, um, but that you know, some guys just do that stuff. And, but I'm, I'm almost always in a stock cap. I have long hair, so it's as much to keep my hair contained and, and, um, and off my face is as much as anything, but it's, it's warmth and, and keep my hair out of my face. But we have some pretty funny, you know, when we're in the teepee at night is we do a lot of camping when, when we're hunting, of course, and, you know, we'll take our hats off and we both have long hair and, you know, put our fingers in it and just kind of like scrub the skin. And like, you just end up looking like you're, you know, just went through a weed whipper. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's a good way to say it. Yeah. Um, that actually segues me perfectly into my next question. I am all, I also do a bunch of camping okay. and do, I mean, for months of the year, I live off of a fire. It's my light, my heat, my cooking. Um, I do everything over a fire. And so come the rut, the first thing I want to do, especially down here in Australia, um, in a, in a, basically in a hunting territory that I'm just starting to figure out. During the rut, I just want to light a fire and camp out. But I had heard that, you know, that was a great way to deter deer. So for the last three seasons, I've been sleeping in my truck for the entire rut and it's starting to suck. Hmm. What are your thoughts on having a fire when you're limited to how much space you have? So I only have 4,000 acres in this particular spot. Can I start using a fire again? And, or should I refrain from having a fire and just sleep in a hammock? That's the other thing. Sometimes I hang a hammock. And then I just sit there, you know, for hours all night because I can't sleep yet. I can hear the fallow croaking around me. Yeah. And I so badly want to start a fire. Um, is that going to be, you know, hunting suicide? I don't think so. Um, it all depends, right? Different different species, different engagements, different um, intrusions. But if you're consistent about starting a fire and you're consistent about maybe where it is, and keeping it like if you're 4,000 acres is a square, but you're doing all of your camping up here and then you're venturing out from there. Well, then the deer will, you know, they'll have this natural buffer of just saying, hey, you know, I'm not even going to go near the fire. There's a camp over there. 
we'll live our lives over here and then you can intrude on them. You can sneak in and, um, or if they have no issues with a fire, you know, I mean, in Alaska, when we're hunting moose, many moose have been killed while guys are breaking sticks and throwing them on the fire. Cause the moose hears the sticks breaking. They think it's another bull raking and they'll come right in. Like there's, there's no issues with a fire. Like I we've had giant bull moose, giant caribou walk, walk right through our camp and n- n- no, no problem. What do you do with your clothing? Do you put it in a bag, a Tupperware container? I keep the wind in my face. Okay. All right. Okay. Fair enough. But you don't worry about, I mean, I go so far as to like when I'm using the bathroom out there, if I accidentally dribble on my boots, I start to get really stressed out. I'm like, oh no, I'm going to smell like no. fire and pee. You don't worry Zero. about any of that stuff. Because if, if they're going to smell yeah. you, they're going to smell you, Even if you scrubbed right? your skin clean, washed your clothes, you still have skin cells coming off. You're still, your breath smells. Like they are in tune with things that don't belong in their environment. They're, you can do everything in your power and they're still going to smell you. They, they did a, um, and this is just in the hunting world, but Field and Stream in the States did a um, study with a police dog. And I, I don't believe regarding like the white-tailed deer in the States or in Canada, I think white-tailed deer have a more powerful nose, a more acute nose than, than even a police dog. And they did tests where they had hunters wash their clothing, shower, wear scent um, retarding suits, and hide. And the police dog could find them in seconds, literally seconds. Like they spray down, they've showered, they're in a suit, totally covered up, everything, face mask, everything, totally socks, boots, gloves, um, cuffs, zippered around, and the dog would find them in seconds, seconds. So just just live your life and 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 hunt and hunt good. Yeah, and pray that you don't have swirly wind, yeah. which is my problem. I've got a property that just the wind. Psh, yeah, all day. Yeah. Um, bow hunting. This is a really interesting one for me. I noticed that you do a lot of bow hunting, but I'm assuming you obviously do hunt with a gun as well. I do. I haven't hunted um, big game with a gun um, a lot in recent history. I've done three or four gun hunts. Um, prior to that, I hadn't killed an animal since 2009 with a gun. So um, it had been a while. I, I didn't gun hunt between 2009 and I think probably about 2017 or 2018. So seven, eight, nine years. Why? I just enjoyed bow hunting. Just enjoyed bow hunting. Why? Uh, <laughs> yeah, why, why, why is The that? quiet. The quiet. Um, so it's it's the quiet it's having to get close. So you really become embodied with the animal that you're hunting. You really watch them breathe. You watch them step. You watch them move. You have to watch them so you can make your next move. You have to do a big move to kill them. So everything has to be right. So you have to become kind of a expert in that scenario, an expert of using terrain, an expert of the animal, an expert of yourself take a little bit of risk, kind of tie it all together. And then when you shoot an animal, an arrow kills kind of like a scalpel. So it zips through them and it causes massive, massive bleeding. And the arrow just zips right through. And I've seen it a number of times 
where the deer just runs a short distance and just stops and looking around, looking around, looking around, just falls over dead. You shoot him with a gun, there's a lot of noise, a big impact. It's like getting hit with a baseball bat. There's a lot of shock and a lot of trauma, and there's a lot of panic, a lot of fear. I don't know if one hurts more than the other, but if I had to, if I had to um, make a guess, I would say that the bullet probably hurts a lot more but there might be so much shock from a bullet that maybe they're not even feeling anything. But I've actually had two friends shoot themselves or stab themselves with arrows all the way through their torsos. And both of them said it was zero pain, zero. What were they doing to stab themselves with arrows? Um, One of them was grabbing a turkey. He grabbed a turkey that he had shot with his bow and the turkey started running. And so for whatever reason, he ran and jumped on top and grabbed the turkey. And when he stood up, his arrow was sticking right here. And he was upset because he had just bought a new jacket. And he said to himself, oh, man, I just tore my new jacket. So he grabbed the arrow and he pulled it. And when he pulled it, his left butt cheek went boop, boop, because it was in his butt. Well, let that be a lesson. Don't jump on your wild turkeys. What about the the debate about ethics? What do you mean? Well, I know when I started bow hunting, right, wrong, or otherwise, because I started as a bow hunter <laughs> first, for some reason, and I'd have to really remember where my head was back then. I think at the time, I just it was what was accessible to me. Guns, I didn't have my firearms license at the time, and, and guns just didn't seem accessible. But something about bow hunting relaxed me and made me feel better. And when I would explain to people or specifically my parents who are totally against hunting uh, that I was starting bow hunting, I felt better to say, oh, but but I'm using a bow. And same with friends, they'd be like, you're starting hunting. And I'd say, yeah, but it's okay. It's I'm a bow hunter. And for some reason, the response would be, oh, okay. Like it's almost like they seem to accept that. Now that I've been around a little bit longer, I, I don't get why some people seem to be so okay with bow hunting, but vehemently opposed to guns. Do you have any insight to this? Yeah, I think it's, I mean, uh, for the most part, I think it's the fact that hunting with the bow is far more difficult. And so you take far less shots, you, you're taking far less game. So to the, to the uninitiated, they say, oh, okay, so you're, you're doing it on an ev- more even playing field. You're, you're evening out your, your playing field. With a gun, we have scopes, really great ballistics. You can settle in if you can shoot behind a gun, squeeze the trigger, and you can shoot them to 1,000 yards, to 1,500 yards, to 2,000 yards if you're that talented. Um, and so people, it seems a little bit more like um, murder. It seems a little bit more like you're taking and like you're – lazy and you're just kind of um, basically stealing from the landscape, if you will. What are your thoughts on it? Do you think that, I mean, you said it yourself, you said, if you're that talented, I, I've never shot an animal with a gun apart from a pheasant. Sure. So I, I don't know. I do know it takes talent to shoot a gun properly though. Do you oh, think yes. that you're closer to the land that way? Do you feel like it's more murder? What are your personal thoughts on that? Uh, to me, it's all the same. To me, I, um, I enjoy bow hunting more. Um, I like that cat and mouse. I like getting close. I like having 
my muscles engaged in having to settle in and go through my process. Um, but even, even then you, then you degrade to, um, recurves, right? Traditional archery. And I've, I have friends that think compound bows are, are absolutely. <laughs> and then, and then you have yeah. guys that go to long bows and they think that guys who shoot recurves are cheating. And then you have guys that make their own bows and make their own arrows. And they say, wait a minute, you bought a bow in a store. Well, Oh, anyone can buy a bow in a store. And it's silly. It's ridiculous. The only thing that I don't um, prescribe to, and it's just personally for me, is long-distance rifle hunting, um, which is different for everybody. But when I hear somebody tell me that they shot an animal at 1,000, at 900 meters, at 800 meters, 700 meters, 600 meters, that's too far for me. That's not something, if they want to do it, that's fine. But for me, even when I'm rifle hunting, you know, I'll just – this is arbitrary, but I'll just say I would love to be within 300 yards when I'm rifle hunting. 200, even better. 100, even better than that. 50, even better. Um, I'd much rather shoot an animal with a rifle at bow range than than to shoot an animal with a rifle at 2,000 yards. And um, and I've shot a rifle. I'm not a. I'm. I can shoot a rifle pretty well. Um, but I don't know all the ballistics, the scopes. Like when I shoot with guys that know what they're doing, really talented riflemen, those guys, you know, they just say, you know, they tell me what to do. Hey, Donnie, dial this, do this. It's a thousand yards, you know, second crosshair. And I, but I have really good mechanics in shooting a gun because I went through pretty severe target panic while shooting my bow. And going through target panic where I had to this kind of like this kind of like hiccup and rush of like just getting rid of my arrow when I would come to full draw. It was a, it was a mental degradation, a mental breakdown. Um, I had to retrain my mind how to settle in, find peace, and have my release be subconscious and pull through and just settle in and just pull and just and it just happens. Well, I shoot a rifle the same way. When I have a rifle. I settle in, I get that crosshair to be making the smallest circle possible. Let my breath out. I just squeeze, like, I squeeze the trigger as though nothing's going to happen. Just, just goes off and surprises me. And, you know, and, and I shoot a bow and a rifle the exact same way. How do you train yourself to do that? Is it breathing? Is it hands-on experience? Your mind can only do one thing at once. So if you are worried about how you're going to release your bow or how you're going to squeeze the trigger and you think your mind is so powerful that you're trying to line these two things up and you're like, okay, so I'm so good. I'm so good that when this finger goes in front of this finger, I'm going to pull the trigger. So there's the deer. I'm so good. I'm so smart. Boom. I'm going to try to time those two things. Well, what happens is your mind is so powerful as a human being. You try to start shortcutting this. So when these two things start coming together, you're like, oh, I know exactly how this is going to go. I'm not even going to wait till they touch. I'm going to squeeze a trigger and I'm going to kind of try and time it, right? I'm going to try to do this stuff. When really what you should be doing is lining these two things up and saying, I really don't care where my arrow or my bullet goes, but I'm going to make this circle because you have to keep moving, right? No one can hold dead still. But what they do is you say, I'm going to make this circle as small as possible. I'm just going to keep aiming at that spot. And you teach your mind this 
through muscle memory just happens. So you're pulling, you're pull, pull, pull. And no matter if you use like an index finger release, right? You have that trigger release. A lot of people, like when you pull your bow and your triggers right here, you know, if you have your finger way out here and then, you know, you, you slap your trigger, you're, you're trying to time it, you know, get your trigger to where you're wrapping your finger all the way around. You're getting rid of your dexterity. And then when you shoot your bow, you're pulling this whole shoulder you're pulling this whole part of your arm like it's in a tube and you can't like it's in a tube and you can't touch the walls of the tube and you have to, you're pulling your bow apart, right? You're pull. I'm going to try to basically kind of pull the string off this bow and you just pull, 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 it goes off. And when you get comfortable with that and just wrapping your finger around, just pull, 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 pop, pull, 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 pull. You're not going to shoot. Like you refuse to release the trigger. Just pull, 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 pull. Now this release back here is happening all by itself. Now all you have to do is just keep aiming. You're aiming. You're keeping your pin as small as possible. You're pulling through, and it just goes off. And your mind is so strong that when you get out of your own head, your mind will make that circle far more small than if you if you if you aim at something and you're like, I'm going to make this circle small. I'm going to make this circle small. Your circle gets bigger and bigger and bigger and worse. But if you just let your mind take over and you just subconsciously, it's like throwing a baseball, you just subconsciously point at something, all of a sudden your wobble is tiny. So are you an instinctive shooter guy? Like, do you try to put some of those elements into that? I can shoot instinctively with a recurve or a longbow, like where there's no sight. But no, I just am looking at the animal. But like, I'm shooting a release right now. I shoot a couple different releases um, but I'm shooting a, do you know who John Dudley is? Yeah. Archer. So he, he, he worked with Carter releases to come up with this um, release called the silver back. And so it's a, it's a, it's a, a, a tension release. So when I put it on my string, there's no trigger. I don't have a trigger. And so when the animal comes out, I'm holding a safety. I come to full draw, take my thumb off the safety and wrap it around. And then I'm just pulling I have no trigger. I'm just pull, 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 pop, and it goes off. And so when an animal comes out, if I'm hunting with that release, when an animal comes out, I just wait till the animal's in a good position. I come to full draw, bury my pin into the vitals, take my thumb off, and then while my pin's on the vitals, I'm just literally focused on keep my pin on the vitals, just pull apart, and all of a sudden the bow goes off, and the arrow goes through the animal exactly where I was aiming, and voila. I might have to look into that. Maybe that's my maybe that's my next thing I need to practice with. I'm going to wrap this up. Yeah, I'm going to wrap this up with a, a question that could be a can, and I won't let it become a can of worms here. I'm just going to try to keep it simple. Um, I never asked how old you are. How old are you? 46. I okay. just turned 46 on October 29th. Right. So you're still a young guy. How long would you say you've been doing this professionally for? Um, basically, uh, filming since 2012, I'd say professionally. Okay. So, so um, yeah, so a fair, a fair, a fair amount of time, 10 years. You've watched the social media shitstorm, and, and I did mm-hmm. promise in my last episode that I would stop talking about it and I'll stay true to that. I'm a woman of my word, but I'm going to ask you personally how you're planning to navigate all the changes that you're seeing and the instant gratification and 
just the 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 fact that people's attention spans aren't what they used to be. Are you just going to well, I won't answer for you. How are you how do you plan on navigating the way of the internet today? Um, I mean, when we first started out, even though you know, there's MySpace, Facebook, I don't know if there's Instagram yet, but there's definitely Facebook and I I wasn't even on it <clears throat> at all. Like my crew they're the ones who said, we need to get you a Facebook page. And I said, why? Why do I need a Facebook page? And I'm like, just let us get you one. I said, okay. They signed it. And like, I do all the writing for Instagram and Facebook, but oh, you, they do all the yeah, posting. I've never all the captions. I could tell by reading yeah, the I've, captions that you do. Yeah, I, I, but I, I've never posted something on Instagram or Facebook, not once in my life. I haven't, I haven't been on Facebook since in probably almost a year. I just like, I don't even go to that site. I'll go on Instagram and do some business stuff where I engage with people sincerely, you know, like, um, in different routes, but I'm, I, I measured in my time there. Right. And I'm, I'm, I'm not, I don't want to, I don't want to participate in any time there any more than I have to. Definitely some of the companies that I work with, I work with awesome companies and some of those guys are like, Hey, will you, you know, will you talk about our new binocular? And absolutely, because I love their new binocular and, you know, and and I want to help guys like most of the stuff that I'm using, I think could make people better in in the hunting that they do. And so, you know, there's some business that is done in that regard, but other than that, I stay off as much as possible. And, um, I, I hunt for myself, right? I'm hunting for myself. I'm telling stories as I want to tell them. I'm, I mean, you don't, you don't get to see this. Nobody really gets to see this, but when I'm in the tree with William or we're on the side of a mountain or whatever, I mean, we are, we're, we're watching ground squirrels. We're watching pikas. We're watching, um, today I was completely engrossed with, there was a barred owl, a pretty big barred owl near us and a little tufted, um, titmouse bird, which looks like a little gray cardinal. And they're sitting right next to one another and kind of engaging. And, um, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll never forget that. And I was completely engrossed in their little engagements there. You know, you have this massive predator, but doesn't eat birds. And you have this little tiny bird that's probably either just checking him out or maybe the owl was too close to his seeds or whatever. But, you know, it's just, it's just cool. But I, I, I hunt for myself and I hunt in a particular manner that it, it can't be, um, infringed on. It can't be, it can't be, um, you know, muddied up because I'm just, if it gets to that point, I'll just stop hunting and I'll just go about my, you know, and I'll find hunting, you know, and people say, are you kidding me? You would stop hunting. Well, for me, hunting and not hunting is a, a line about the size of a human hair. And I don't need to hunt to, to check certain boxes in my life. What I need, I, you know, my need for hunting is, is my need for, for living. I need, I need to hunt cause I need to live. But if it's ever doesn't make sense for human beings to hunt or, you know, if there's population issues or habitat issues or things like this, like, you know, these are, these are big decisions for us to kind of think about and talk about, but never will social media, um, there isn't enough money in the world. Uh, I'm motivated by money. Because like a lot of business owners, I have payroll and 
they have to put gas in my car and turn lights on or buy an ax for firewood or whatever it is that we're doing. So, um, you know, in a, in a sense that I do things to make money, it's absolutely true. I, but I'm not, uh, if, 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 if honestly, if you gave me a hundred million dollars, I would have no idea what to do with it. You know, I, aside from, I would just, I would buy an, a, a gross amount of land and, and, uh, and do exactly what I'm doing right now. Yeah, so, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Well, well I'm going to wrap it up. What's next for you? What can we, uh, what can we look for in the future? Um, that's a good, that's a good question. And we're working on, we completed our fourth film last year with winds of ADAC and we'll be working on our fifth film this year. And then we have other couple, we have some really big projects coming up. Um, we're working with a composite rifle ammunition out of Texas, a company called true velocity. They have invented a composite shell case, uh, rifle case that is 35% lighter. I won't go into particulars, but it's 35% lighter way safer, way safer for the shooter to shoot way more accurate, less powder, less recoil. It's, it's literally going to change the world of war fighting, law enforcement, um, hunters, uh, shooters. It's, it's remarkable. So we're doing some really exciting film work with that company. And, um, it's really amazing to see, like to go into, I've never been in an ammunition plant a normal ammunition plant, but going into their ammunition plant is like going into NASA and it's really cool. So we're doing a lot of film work with those guys coming out with our next film. Um, and, and, uh, yeah, just continuing on the road. So we have, we've journeyed far and wide and, and, uh, we're not stopping and unless it ends in a, in an airplane crash or, or a uh, incident with a bear, that's for sure. Oh, knock on wood. Um, that it doesn't happen. <laughs> Not that it does. Uh, all right. Well, I'll include all of these links and all the links about where to, to find you and find your films uh, into the write-up. So other than that, thank you so much for taking the time and crawling out of the tree stand. <laughs> Appreciate yeah. It. Thank you for having me. It's, uh, yeah, it's, it's really cool. Thank you. It's fun. And that concludes this episode of Anchored. Thank you for listening. 